0: This episode of Crosscut Talks is supported by Alaska Airlines.
1: Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Bumgarten, the Managing Editor at Crosscut. And today we're talking about policing, protests and public safety. And we're talking about it with someone who has a unique perspective on all three of those items. In 2018, Carmen Best was appointed chief of the Seattle Police Department. As the first black woman to hold the post, her ascent was celebrated as a perhaps belated but notable achievement for a department that was under federal supervision for excessive use of force and possible bias. Then, last summer, Best was leading that department through the tense protest that followed the murder of George Floyd by Minneapolis police. And her actions during those protests put her at odds with many in the community and some city leaders. A few months later, she retired from her post, a move she attributed to the city council's stated aims to cut funding to the police department. Now, almost a year after the beginning of those protests, Best has the benefit of some hindsight. She also isn't beholden to city policies and probably doesn't feel as much pressure from the rank and file. In this interview from the Crosscut Festival, she shows some real sympathies to the cause of protesters who pushed for the changes that led her to walk away from a job that she didn't really want to leave. But she also holds fast to a worldview shaped by decades of police work. Best is at a complicated intersection of race and power, and I think that the interviewer here, Crosscut City reporter David Crowman, does a masterful job at pressing her to speak to that complexity you'll hear it in her responses. The guy really knows his stuff. This conversation and all other conversations on the social justice track at the 2021 Crosscut Festival was sponsored by Waldron, which would like to share the following message. Waldron helps organizations and people to reach their full potential, guiding human-centered journeys to organizational and professional success with courage, compassion, and discretion. Clients seek out Waldron when their brands are on the line for impactful board consulting, organization and leadership development, executive coaching, career transition, and career management. Waldron is proud to support CrossCut, a forum for truth and dialogue that increases knowledge, understanding, and compassionate participation. All right, I hope you enjoy the conversation. If you have any feedback, send it to talks at crosscut.com. Okay, on with the show.
2: I want to start uh, today with the role of police in society today. Um, And I'm going to read you a quote of yours, actually. In 2019, you told a group of homeless service providers, quote, I feel like we're working with a lot of systems that really haven't reached their full potential so that officers end up on the front lines of all of this stuff that we don't need to be on the front lines of. A lot of times we have to be mental health providers or work on drug addiction issues, but that is the state of the city. I just, um, to start, I'm, I'm curious, can you just elaborate on that and what, what you meant by that?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, I don't think it's any secret that officers, there's a lot of discussion around it about officers responding to a lot of calls for service that might not be, you um, well within you know what we would expect from policing but often in my view uh, it's because we have other i'm just going to call it failed systems or uh, inadequately supported systems might be a better way to put it Uh, where officers are often responding to people in crisis um you know people with uh, you know homeless and housing issues people with addiction issues um can often be at the crux of what we're responding to and if those other systems that were more um, appropriately um, capable of dealing with those issues or actually engaged and involved and supported fully and we're working in tandem, I think we'd have a lot better responses. So that's really what I'm looking at other systems that aren't necessarily uh, fully uh, funded or capable or uh, staffed to deal with some of these issues um, that come up routinely and officers end up um, addressing.
2: How much of officers' sort of daily work would you say is is now um, responding to those sorts of incidents?
0: Yeah, it's hard for me to uh, to quantify that. I will say this, because it depends on where you work, what time of day, what shift. There are certain areas where, for example, there's a, a supportive housing for people with a mental crisis. So a lot of that officer's time is spent responding to and from that area, whereas in other areas, maybe not so much. But I can say generally speaking, um, at least when I was uh, in Seattle, the latest figures that I know of was about 18,000 calls for service for people in crisis. So uh, that was over uh, about a, a 18-month period. So that's a lot of calls for service for just the crisis calls, let alone the other types of calls that you respond to where the crux of the issue, I myself have responded to domestic violence, when in fact you know the person may have committed domestic violence but also had a substance abuse problem or some other issue going on. So um, there's a lot of intersectionality there. So I would say a great deal of time is spent with those types of issues.
2: Mm-hmm. And I I bring this up to start because, as you know, you're aware, a lot of the protests of last summer were around police's role in society and um, some people calling for uh, police to take less of a role in sort of day to day um, responses, you know, um, responding to society's broader problems like that. And so I guess um, I hear some overlap in in what you were saying now about. Failed systems um, and what some of the protesters were saying, and I'm, I guess I'm wondering, do you see it that way? Do you see overlap in some of the demands from last summer and what you're saying now?
0: I absolutely do. I mean, the, they're, we're actually saying the same things in a lot of ways, but coming from it maybe for, from a different solution standpoint, but uh, can clearly recognize uh, when there's an argument that there's an argument for. Uh, having other service providers um, pick up in certain areas. And they may be more appropriate in in many cases um, to do that. So I think it's important that we continue to have that discussion and actually move forward on implementing some of some of those things but I also wanted to make sure uh at the, that we were doing it in a way that you know we had all the stakeholders at the table That we piloted something because it's uh, not necessarily a new idea but in order to make it really work we want to maybe start with a smaller area figure out where any gaps are gaps in services or what other things that we can do before we implemented something uh, on a broader perspective but clearly there's an opportunity there to um to collaborate, and I think some of uh, the the talk around this was, you know, defunding and divesting in police departments. Well, I understood where that came from. I personally believe that we should bolster the systems that are there and see how that works collaboratively, and then scale back the funding so that it's done in a way that we sure we don't, um, you know. Uh, inadvertently or unexpectedly have a negative impact. So I'm all for it though because I do understand that everything evolves, situations evolve, and we need to look at how we can better provide service to the community. Uh, and I think there's a way to do that and uh, to enhance it, but it really needs to be thoughtful and thought out uh, and modulated and not just, you know, not just go in uh, without some thoughtful um, strategies.
2: Yeah, I was going to talk about the the funding mechanisms, and um, as you alluded to, a lot of the demands were about taking money from police in order to build out those systems that you said were, were failures and um, or not not failing necessarily, but um, not well supported. Right. And you know, the argument was that through decades and through several recessions, police department budgets have continued to go up, while those other departments maybe haven't seen the same sorts of budget increases. Um, and I'm curious um, to hear more about how how the funding um, for police should be viewed in the context of funding for those other systems.
0: Well, I think that they should look at everything and all what we're expecting people to do and how we're expecting to to respond to calls for service. I will say this: police budgets have gone up, and I talk from my own inspe- uh, perspective. And a lot of those are um, unfunded mandates things that, you know, officers needed, they wanted officers to do extra training and extra equipment, whether that is body-worn cameras or in-car videos or, uh, you know, uh, some other uh, additional, um, you know, uh, equipment that officers can use to make themselves or the public safer. All those things cost money. I mean, that's, at the end of the day, it costs to add these things onto an organization. Uh, and so uh, I don't believe that it, under any circumstances, at least I can speak from my own experience, was anybody being frivolous uh, with the funding or with the money, there was just, you know, um, you know a lot of work to be done. And in some cases, you know, they point to the overtime. But the overtime is often uh, an effect of not having the staffing numbers, uh, to, to do the, the work that's being asked to do. So now we had to put some money on overtime to come back, or have some money backfill a position. So those things were, were occurring as well. So if we had the appropriate level of staffing, if we were looking at you know, the types of calls for service, we were collaborating with other uh, organizations. I think that there's an opportunity there to you know, uh, you know, share the wealth, so to speak, and figure out how we might uh, move things around and be more efficient.
2: And it sounded like you alluded to before, though, that you could see a scenario in which those other systems have been built out enough that it might be appropriate to move some money away from the police department. Did I hear you correctly when you when you
0: said that? Yeah, I, I was saying yeah. Well, you, you, that we're saying the same thing, maybe framing it a little different. I instead of moving money away from, I'm just saying here's the pool that we have, and here's the, here's the need, and who can do what, and how and how do we fund it, right? And so um, that would be the most. You know, logical way to move forward if you ask me. And that may mean at the end of the day that there's less uh, funding going directly into the police budgets and more going into other areas, um, but that needs to be, you know, a collaborative discussion about how that works and what that looks like. I see.
2: Um, moving on slightly, um, mm-hmm. we know that the summer's protests were spurred on by George Floyd's murder, but obviously mm-hmm. there was a lot more pent up there. Um, why, what do you think led to um, that moment being as big as it was?
0: Well, there's so many things to unpack with the murder of George Floyd. Look, there's nobody I can think of that wasn't affected by seeing a grown man, uh, you know, murdered, uh, you know, in front of our very eyes. We all saw it. We all were affected by it. Uh, and it, it was tragic. And so, you know, I think that just seeing that, like there's been so many horrible things that we've seen, somehow watching this prolonged um, event was just, you know, was mortifying, you know, and then you couple that with the fact that we're all going through this pandemic, you know, people are, you know, now at home, can't really get out and do other things. I think all of that combined together really gave um, the impetus for, you know, it was there was going to be protests no matter what, and, and rightfully so, but I think it gave even more energy behind the ability to really make voices heard um, during the um, the protests for the murder of George Floyd. Um, and, you know, the lack of humanity, uh, you know, Derek Chauvin, of course, now we moved, you know, it's been almost a year since, you know, or over a year since this occurred, and certainly we have been able to um, look at all of the evidence and you know, look at, you know, um, the way that that former officer behaved. And it's very clear uh, now that he's been convicted, you know, what happened there. So it, was, it it sort of validated everybody's, you know, horror at what they were seeing and why they were protesting.
2: And I wonder if leading up to that moment, do you, were police departments doing enough in the past to to listen to communities' concerns?
0: Now, that, that's a pretty heavy question, and here's why. Because there's 18,000 police agencies, yeah. and so the where the where it gets difficult is that you know some agencies probably yes, and some agencies probably no, right? <laughs> you know, so you have so much um, divergent you know uh, ideas about training and how community interaction is and community engagement that you're never going to get just the same thing every single place you go. Uh, you know, um, there was a shooting where a man was shot in the back. Was, I think it was—I can't think it was first name right now. A Blake, um, and uh, the, you know, he was going around the car. The officer shot him in the back, and I was like, "Where's the where's the the body worn video?" But they don't have body body worn video. So that lack of continuity and consistency, you know, nationally from agency to agency, always creates. A challenge for, you know, where some agencies are more progressive and others aren't. Some agencies are doing more training and others aren't. Some agencies do some sort of technical procedures or hand out evidence in a certain way and others don't. So I'm a big believer that we should be more consistent across the board and have some baseline um, uh, responsibilities so that we can have those discussions, you know, from at least the same basis of operation. So when you ask a question about was it working well or were they communicating well with communities, you know, I'm going to say that's going to be nuanced, depending upon where you were in the country and what agency and the level of engagement of people around that, the demographics of the neighborhood, and all those things contribute to the ability to have those types of discussions.
2: Yeah. In in Seattle, we've been talking about reform for a long time, um, yeah. recently in the, in the last decade in the context of the consent decree. Um, but, you know, the, I think the last summer showed us that there's clearly a portion of the city that doesn't feel like those reforms have Stuck or they haven't done enough. Um, so how how does a police department make changes in a way that feels real on the ground, that, that people actually feel in their day-to-day
0: lives? Right, yeah, so on uh, two so two things here. One is, I absolutely believe in the reform, the reform efforts, you know, changing policies, procedures, and accountability. You know, in Seattle in particular, having a, an Office of Inspector General, and Office of Police Accountability, and, uh, you know, Ombudsman, and, um, Uh, you know, all of those things and a community police commission as well, all of those things come together to give more accountability, to build reforms, to, to help change systems. And I think that is incredibly important. So that's one piece. But on the uh, the same token, on the same hand, you know, there needs to be that level of connection to the community stakeholders um, and building those relationships that actually make change happen. I think in some ways that should be the role of the Community Police Commission, that's just my own view, representing community and community issues, but also, you know, uh, departments should be going out and reaching out directly um, because even though all of these things have been in place and in Seattle for over a decade now, we've been doing, working on reforms, you know, uh, so I, I would actually say some of the, some of the um, requirements probably antiquated at this point because it was all over a decade ago. But um, in the meantime, we have people who are day to day seeing whether it's here or elsewhere, uh, you know, black people, black and brown people dying at the hands of police, you know, at higher uh, scale of numbers, Um, and you know, these really tragic situations and they hit home, right? They, they, and so people can't really feel like we're progressing when they, when they turn on their TV every week and they see another incident. So there's the dialogue and the discussion needs to, while, while focus on those national incidents, also need to bring it home to where, where we all live and work and are engaging on a daily basis, because that's, what's going to affect you personally. I mean, all of it affects us. But you know, what's going to affect what happens right here is the relationships that you're building right here. Um, and so, I, I, I see that as as a part of a dichotomy about reforming things. Look, I, I walked in a, a couple of marches myself. You know, listened. I'm not you know, not police gear. Just sort of walking along as any community member would and listening. Uh, and it was very clear the the emotion and the concern. Uh, they weren't, uh, you know. They were real. That's what I'm trying to say. It wasn't just somebody. Just the people were really feeling that level of hurt and pain. So as much as we uh, had made some uh, progress on the accountability scale, we still need to deal with some of these other uh, pervasive issues and underlying issues. And a lot of it is based on you know race and racism. You know, and and uh, and people are trying to fix that. Often, you know, working through the police departments because they're very visible. But, you know, I always go back to, uh, you know, we need to fix that on a whole lot of other levels as well. If you think you can make a police department that's going that just doesn't have those issues uh, while the rest of your society does, uh, it's almost impossible to make happen. You have to address the issues in the police, but at the same time, I would say uh, simultaneously, you know, be working on those other systems, you know, education and healthcare and everything else where we see you know, detrimental effects of a racial divide in this country.
2: And as long as we were talking about um, George Floyd and Derek Chauvin, um, you know, one of the things that people pointed to that um, secured the guilty verdict for Derek Chauvin was his own chief testifying against him. Um, if you were in that situation, would you have testified against George Floyd if you were his chief? Or I mean, I, against I, Derek I, Chauvin, excuse me.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah definitely. Definitely, I think I would. I think most chiefs would. A lot of chiefs would, Um, because there are a lot of progressive agencies. Chief uh, Madeira Arredondo, as a you know good guy, I know personally. He's also sued his agency at one time before he was chief uh, for for racial uh, disparity. So I I think that you know he definitely was going to err on doing what's right. I think I would have too. I can't imagine being okay with what happened outside of policy, you know, not, a, not it wasn't even a policy issue. This was a crime. People keep talking about policies as if, you know, how badly he followed that policy, which he did, and which was a, a good element. But he was convicted of a crime, a criminal act, and we want to keep that in mind. So, you know, what chief isn't going to, or even person who wears a you know, badge or is committed, isn't going to testify in a criminal case against a criminal? Yeah.
2: Um- on the protests uh, going forward, you know, there's been a lot of reflection about response to the protests last summer. Yeah. Going forward, should police departments be allowed to use tear gas at protests?
0: You know, I would say there may be a circumstance where it could be allowed, but generally speaking, no. You know, generally speaking, we shouldn't be. And also, you know, I would say this: if if the community doesn't want it or can't you know, it just says no to it, then you're going to have to operate within that. That said, um, it does need to be some sort of, um, you know, less lethal opportunity to disperse large crowds uh, and to defend, uh, you know, um, when they're composing, uh, opposing, not composing, opposing groups, um, so to be able to clear areas. I mean, but tear gas clearly is you know, a, a non-starter for certain areas. And certainly in Seattle, it clearly caused me personally a lot of stress uh, about how we're going to move forward with that. And you have to recognize times change, you know, was, was acceptable uh, in 1977, may not be acceptable in 87, may not be acceptable in 97, and certainly uh, in, in 2020, it wasn't, right? And so um, some self-reflection there is warranted. And you know, I never walk forward and say that we did everything perfectly when we didn't because we didn't. But I do think that under the circumstances, we were trying to make the best decisions um, uh, in the best interest of everybody involved. Uh, and so um, tear gas, that, dis- that discussion continues. I think I just read today where it's been banned in another jurisdiction. So I think we're moving into a different era of when, when and how to use it, or if we use it.
2: right and And you alluded to some self-reflection. Um, can you say more about that? was Was the Seattle Police Department's use of tear gas proper last year?
0: Well, it was proper in my view, in, in that we tried to follow the regulations that were pre- that were presented to us. Um, but you know I, I also recognize, David, that we have to uh, adhere to the to the norms of society and to what they want. Now, in the past, you know we've used gas, we'd used tear gas, we had used tear gas before. Um, and people weren't thrilled about it, but it was still permissible to use as a um, crowd dispersal uh, irritant. Uh, and so uh, it wasn't banned at the time. It wasn't illegal to use. It was definitely one of our um, options uh, on that we could utilize uh, to disperse you know large crowds. And we were dealing with some pretty unique circumstances there, again, not as a defense of, uh, but just saying what was before us. you know, these super large groups, most people gathered uh, just to express their uh, complete um, you know consternation of for lack of a better word uh, of what happened to George Floyd. But there were pockets of groups of people there that were also um, engaged in you know really destructive behavior as well. So we, we needed to figure out, you know now being reflective, you know how can we figure out ways of addressing that portion? Uh, without overly or unduly affecting uh, the rest of the people who gathered and assembled. And that question, I think agencies are still working through it. You know, right after, um, you know, we had dealt with the bulk of uh, the protests continued for months and months and months with the really big ones. Um, We we convened through the uh, International Association of Chiefs of Police. Uh, multiple cities from around the world uh, to talk about, you know, how to address these really large events and, and protests when you have elements that are, you know, being destructive. What do you do and how do you do that safely uh, and not get yourself or your organization in hot water, so to speak, um, trying to follow, you know, traditional mechanisms which are no longer accepted. And it was an interesting conversation, um, you know, I think a lot of cities. We talked to people from Paris, from Copenhagen, from Toronto, uh, London, other major cities. All cities across the uh, across the world still struggling with how best to do these things and how best to address it, um, you know, in a way that uh, still provided for the you know, public safety and didn't unduly put anybody at risk. I think that we're still figuring out the best way to do that uh, oh, and. Uh, I I do think we'll we'll have you know you know some compromises and some concessions we made uh, on behalf of the public to make sure that we don't have the level of angst that we had coming out of the George Floyd protests.
2: Yeah, I was going to ask. I mean, it seems like we have this cycle of protest um, and some clashes, and then um, there's some finger pointing in both directions. Um, how do you how do you disrupt that cycle? How do you Create an environment in which people are confident that they can go out and express their First Amendment rights, and not, um, you know, come away feeling like it was it devolved into chaos.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, I think that there's a lot of folks in Seattle that are working on that now, and really across the country, uh, working on those very issues about how do we make sure that people feel safe. Protesting, but how do you also make sure that these things don't evolve into, um, you know, into these really horrible situations, where uh, everybody's pitted against everyone else? I often said I would go to a meeting after one of these situations, and nobody was happy. Right, the business owners didn't like being looted. The people that were living in and around the precinct that may have gotten some pepper spray or or tear gas in their home were certainly angry about that. You know, there are protesters who are peaceful who also got the residual effects of that. There were others. who were being disruptive, who, you know, also had concerns about, you know, what was happening. So there was a lot, and there's the cops too, right? They're also there. Uh, and so just trying to make sure that, you know, we keep you know, kept an environment that was relatively as, as, as safe as possible for all those officers responding as well. You know, I, I, you know, one of the things that people don't often know or consider is the fact that as a police chief, you have to make sure, I mean, the police department and fire department are two areas that can be sued. The employer can be sued. For not adequately equipping uh, their personnel, so if we have a night where there's rocks and bottles being thrown, I certainly can't send people out there without helmets on their head, right? There's a there's all those things to consider and weigh as well. So um, I see a way forward, but you know, just there's a lot of complexity around around these issues.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, moving on to um, the question of discipline and and police unions, um, you know, you you came up through. Seattle Police Department, you were a SPOG yeah. member, Police Officers yeah. Guild member, mm-hmm. um, of course, then you transitioned into management. Um, I, I guess I'm curious, can you talk to them about the role of that arbitration plays in um, police discipline? Um, does, do, do you think that police unions and, you know, locally SPOG, the Seattle Police Officers Guild um, have too much power?
0: Yeah, that's a that's such. A, you're asking all these very loaded questions, like you're a trained journalist. <laughs> yeah, because you know, I absolutely. There's always going to be some healthy, uh, you know, healthy tension between management and SPOG. It's just the way it works, and that will be in some ways. You know, we have. You know, we all are interested in making sure that we have a good work environment for the officers. That's you know, safe and clear. SPG's role is supposed to be, you know, benefits. Um, working conditions and, you know, and the pay, right, for officers. So uh, and we want them to remain in that role, but not dictate, you know, the values and the, um, you know, the uh, accountability for the whole organization. So there's always a healthy tension when there's some crossover uh, with, you know, SPOG, But I believe in, in unions and that unions should be there to protect workers' rights, you know, so I don't want to, um, you know, ever go against that piece of it. But certainly, we also you know need to be have clear guidelines about responsibility and who's in charge of what. And as a police chief, you know when you administer discipline, you know part of that pro- process and going to arbitration, want people to have the appeal process and due process. Um, but it seems like the arbitration piece has been, you know contentious in, in many ways. Uh, and could use some uh, reevaluation. I mean, we, uh, the Seattle Police Department. When I say we, the Seattle Police Department, uh, terminated the employment of uh, a person who uh, was ac- accused of excessive force, and the appeals, um, it, it could still be appealed even today. But Adley
2: Shepherd, is that?
0: Yes, and, um, and 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 we're in what twenty twenty one now. Uh, and I believe when uh, when his employment was terminated with Kathleen, it was like 2014 or 2015. I can't remember the exact year, but it's been a long process. And does that make sense for something like that to drag out uh, to that um, to that level, and you know, I will say the arbitrator stated, and of course, I'm on the record, but the arbitrator did state that it was excessive force and that it was a policy violation. So you agree with it, but you somehow disagree with the, the, the discipline that was administered and it drug on for a long time. And I would say in this, that particular case, that was not the right decision, right? And so I think that it's worth looking at the system in place, how arbitrators are chosen, chosen, um, do they have, you know, history and experience of dealing with law enforcement and policing. There are uh, several recommendations around that that I think um, that came from CPC and others uh, about arbitration selection, and I think it's worth looking at.
2: Did you ever, when deciding on discipline for an officer, did you ever um, change or adjust the kind of discipline you thought was appropriate um, in order to Pass down something that you thought had a better chance of making it through arbitration?
0: No, really, I didn't. I, I couldn't let arbitration be the you know the um, the guiding factor in making those decisions. You know, and those decisions are pretty, you know, they can be pretty complex. I and mean, they look at the history of the officer, what they've done before, what they uh, you know what they haven't done. do they have they been in trouble on other occasions? Are they a new officer? Who may have made a mistake, or are should they be seasoned and well versed enough to know better? I mean, all those things come into play. How egregious was it? Does this uh, did the action undermine public trust to the point that we really can't have this person back in employ? I mean, all those things come into effect um, when you're trying to make sure that you do make the right decision. Uh, on a case. And sometimes, you know, people will want the person to be terminated, but that's not really the most viable action. Sometimes they don't, you know, I've had disagreements with even the OPA where they didn't want to terminate, and we did terminate, because, you know, ultimately, you know, my my value was, look, I got to wear this uniform just like everybody else does, right? <laughs> and so I don't want this person walking around having done some of these acts uh, representing, um, you know, our our professional line of work. So it was much more important to me to, to make sure they, that they weren't there uh, to continue. Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm. And we're gonna get to some um, audience questions here in a few minutes, um, sure. but I will, uh, got a few more of my own. Um, right. I, I, when you, so when you took the job, when you were selected as uh, police chief,
0: finally. Uh, Canada,
2: <laughs> <laughs> right, right, which was a famously sort of um, chaotic selection process. Yeah. Um, when you, when you did get that job, how long did you think you would keep it?
0: You know, I thought, you know, I, you not know, you never know. Right. Uh, but I, I thought kind of thought around the five yearish mark, you know, I thought, you know, uh, probably five years is good for rotating out of any position and getting fresh eyes on it. So. I, that was in my sort of my mind's eye. You never know. Some people stay longer. I think Chief Kurlikowski was here for nine years. Some people are less. But, you know, that was kind of the barometer, I would have thought, you know, around mm-hmm. five years.
2: And can you just talk about what changed that plan a little bit?
0: Yeah, well, as you know, because <laughs> you were there. I mean, it was all of the, you know, it, it was coming out of all the George Floyd protests and then the defund issues. Um, you know they were they were really challenging. You know people tell me, and I absolutely agree, I look younger now than I did a year ago because <laughs> it was so stressful uh, being involved. And with all of that, and I was up late at night, and I was always you know trying to do what's right and what's best uh, for the organization. But ultimately, look, um uh, the budget cuts, the defunding, that discussion, you know, and then really the lack of respect that city council uh, paid me, it was all that combination of all those things um, was, you know, it was time to go. Look, I was barely, you know, could barely communicate with council. A lot of the communication was done in writing simply because I really wanted to get things on the record and didn't have um, the the level of um, of engagement. That you know, I had seen many other chiefs have. To be honest with you, look, I had worked in the chief's offices first, a deputy chief with Kathleen O'Toole. I was a public information officer under Chief Stamper, uh, and then Chief Kurlikowski. So I worked on that top floor uh, around the brass a lot. You know, uh, in between different stints in the department, and it really was so contentious. I would never seen a period of time where. Um, the council would make decisions about what's happening with policing and not even consult uh, the police department on it. So it was, you know... Really trying in that regard, you know, all of the talk about defunding uh, people to 50 percent. You know, I was on the record and was staying on the record, of saying I thought that that was too drastic, too soon, uh, without having, you know, really good planning and what's going to be the process, who's going to answer calls. I felt like it was really a way, of, in some ways, of setting, you know, the chief up, whoever that was, but me at the time, for failure because, you know. Um, It's a probable outcome that if you reduce the the force by 50% uh, without viable options for handling calls for service, for dealing with shootings, robberies, assaults, uh, and those types of issues, that crime is going to go up And, you know, and then people will turn to the chief and say, chief, what are you going to do about crime? It's like, well, crime is up and we have less resources than we had before to really address the problem. And so I did not want to have that laid at my feet. And then the other thing was the whole issue of all the work we had done to bring additional diversity to the organization, you know, hiring more officers of color, hiring more women. And so those would be the first people, as I mentioned before, to to, um, get, you know, laid off if we were to defund the department by 50%. And so I look, I'm the very first African-American woman chief in Seattle and my legacy could not and would not be that we let go of the most, you know, of all of our diversity under this defund movement and we ended up being less diverse under um, my um, time and then more diverse. You know, and I just, uh, that was something I cannot personally, um, invest in. It was, it was incredibly important to me that we maintain the diversity that we kept on that track. And even if it ended up that we were going to shift, um, shift funding and resources to do it thoughtfully without laying off, you know, some of our most diverse officers and really good people. You know, I, I was meeting these folks as we were bringing them in. You know, I was saying the last group I talked to, eleven of the twelve had, you know, degrees, something that probably didn't happen when I came on, you know, and three or four of them had advanced degrees and, and you know could be doing a lot of different other things, working for you know, four to five hundred companies, but decided to come onto the police department in a public service capacity. And sending them away just felt very duplicitous uh, and, and disingenuous to what, why we had recruited them and brought them on.
2: Do, do you think that was um, that decision was a little premature in retrospect now? Because you know there weren't, we haven't seen any layoffs. The the exits we have seen are officers leaving of their own accord. Um,
0: yeah, well, so a lot of that was... Is- do,
2: do you think maybe your exit, um, you know, sort of gave people the idea that they could that they could leave, and maybe if you'd stuck around, you could have. Um, helped people stick around?
0: I, you know, listen, I wanted to stick around, but as you know, the conversation was was never that they weren't going to do this. So I fully expected um, based on, you know, that no, the council didn't follow through to their word on that, but I did expect them to, and to actually lay people off. They were telling me at that time that you could even lay people off out of order. And so, you know, I think the handwriting was on the wall that it was going to be a contentious a situation from here on out. And you know, nobody gains from that. The city doesn't get better protection. You know, I'm not able to do my job, you know, as effectively as I thought I would would be able to do it. You know, and so uh, I really felt like it was in the best interest of everybody involved to move on. And I really didn't want my legacy to be. You know this whole thing. You know, and and you were there. You know, read the papers. I mean, it was very clear the comments coming out of council about defunding, and about taking money away, and about laying people off out of order, and all these different things that were really, I think, going to have a detrimental effect uh, on the public, uh, and certainly on you know the ability to move forward. And I just, I just didn't want to be, um, you know. Uh, an enabler of that, you know, uh, from from my perspective. And you're right, it, as it turns out, it hasn't been um, quite as bad as they were uh, pontificating about earlier. But like, there's no way you could be clairvoyant enough to know what the future held and what was going to happen. And several officers left on their own, many because, um, you know, they were under the impression they were going to lose their jobs. So they started applying for jobs back in you know, July and August when I was when I was leaving, uh, because, you know, they're people like everybody else. They have mortgages and school and all those other things. Um, and if you're gonna be laid off, you had to prepare, uh, you know, prepare to go elsewhere. Maybe where you'd be more appreciated, maybe where your services were more wanted. Um, so I think that was definitely a factor in people's exodus.
1: We'll be back with more after this.
0: Ready to take your travels to the next level? Alaska Airlines is committed to providing a higher standard of safety and cleanliness throughout your journey, from mask requirements and touch-free options to HEPA filters on board and everything in between. Plus, their award-winning loyalty program, Mileage Plan, makes it easy to earn and redeem miles wherever you go, including destinations worldwide, thanks to their One World Alliance membership. If you're ready to land a low fare, next level care and the best experience in the air, book now at alaskaair.com.
2: So I want to get to a couple of audience questions here as best as we can. Um, We're running a little short on time. But um, from Amanda Richer here, um, Mm -hmm. she asks, uh, what are some of the actions that the policing institutions can take to ensure positive interactions with vulnerable populations, such as the unhoused?
0: Yeah, that's always, you know, uh, you know, tough because officers are often uh, intersecting with, um, you know, people who are, you know, unhoused. But, you know, there's, and there's and unhoused is so broad, right? Unhoused and addicted, unhoused and mentally ill, unhoused and down on their luck. You know, so there's different ways that you're going to interact with people who, uh, you know, aren't uh, living, you uh, you know, in, in shelters or in, in, a, in a sheltered way. Um, I think that working with um, the organizations best suited for that, working with our social, social workers and uh, social service providers really will give us better opportunity. I think that the department was responding much better to that than they did when I came on, you know, uh, I'm retired now, but when I came on 30 years ago. It was a completely different response than what we're seeing now, where the people are asking for services and looking for diversion and looking for other ways to, um, to help service folks. So, and now I think they've taken that out of the hands of the navigation team and put it into another arena, which is fine. But I think that working together, collaborating, having resources that can come in, Uh, and help people um, is really the best thing to do.
2: Um, Moving on, um, Mary Grobner, um, sorry Mm -hmm. for mispronunciations, asks, what do you think about the impact of police with military backgrounds? Is it helpful or does it exacerbate slash reinforce too much force or escalation?
0: Yeah, well, I'm going to say I come from, I have a little bias because I had a military background. <laughs> so, you know, so I, I want to make sure that that's, you know, but I think that there's, there are things that, you know, I, I don't think that having a military background should uh, should not, uh, should make it, um, you know, where you can't be a police officer because everything is so individual about how people's uh, perspective is and what they did and, um, you know, and what their role was. I think the one thing that did, you um, Hang on a little bit with sort of that chain of command issue, you know, and adhering to it. And I think that we should, you know, flatten things more. Uh, those discussions with community members should be with, you know, every every echelon of the organization, and not just the higher ranking ones. So there is some of that that can be um, helpful. Uh, but um, you know, I don't think it should be an all out disqualifier if you have military experience, because you know, there's probably a lot of very good people who have served in the military, um, and aren't, you know, gun-happy or out there trying to hurt people. So you really want to make sure that, you know, you have the processes and the backgrounding and all that in, uh, in place so that you can ensure that you're not getting people who have a propensity toward you know, any negative actions.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, and moving along here, um, this is a sort of general question about re- uh, the, the pay for officers. Um, let's see. Uh, Disregarding over time, uh, this question I asks, hasn't compensation, pay, and benefits for individual officers rid- risen much more faster than inflation over the last decade or so? So I guess the question is yeah. the pace of the pace of uh, raises for for
0: officers, if, the, if that's appropriate. Yeah. Hard for me to answer, because I, I just don't know the answer to that, to be honest yeah. with you. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I can say that, you know, there have been pay raises, uh, and... I think you know, reasonably so that all that's done through negotiation with the city, between the city and the unions, uh, not necessarily with the police chief. So um, yeah, there, there definitely have been pay raises. Whether they are commensurate with the uh, other e- economic factors, uh, they should be. I think those. that's why they have these discussions uh, with the city about where they can raise and where they can't raise and what they can or cannot do. But uh, those are r- really handled in that arena.
2: I'll, I'll follow up on that one. Um, there was some reporting out of, you know, ten officers, some some number of officers who were earning well into six figures yeah. off of overtime, four hundred thousand dollars in some case a year off of overtime. Um, what's going on there? Is that uh, how problematic do you, do you view that, and and how do you avoid that kind of?
0: yeah I thought it was a real problem if you wanted the truth about it, and um, I think that the systems all need to be talking to each other and aligned. Um, former council member Tim Burgess really was trying to take up how we deal with off duty work and you know, and the requirements and the tracking and there needs to be a technological answer to that because even I know that at times. You know, a person works a regular shift, and they may go work. um, We have rules around how much, you know, off-duty you can work on department time, but there's other off-duty work that's out there that's not regulated or tracked by the department. So I think that all of that needs to come into alignment so that, you know, all the systems know uh, what's happening before somebody files a tax return. We have this, you know, um, know, uh, this exorbitant amount. And if the person actually worked the time, uh, and was paid their proper um, pay at the time, then, you know, it's hard to dispute, you know, them getting their, their appropriate pay, but certainly there's a number of hours that, you know, a person becomes, their wellness and their ability to do their job well become affected, and we want to make sure that we don't go outside of that.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, Marianne North asks, do, do you believe the stress of policing contributes to police misbehavior? Uh, if so, how can police departments help police officers deal with the stress before it turns into dangerous behavior.
0: Sure, there's a, there's a number of answers to that, but you know, wellness is is now one of the critical topics in policing about how to keep officers Mentally, physically, you know, well, if an officer responds to a particularly traumatic call for service, you know, is there an opportunity to either take them offline or to, um, you know, to not have them go to back-to-back calls of that nature? To, you know, make sure that we have in place as a profession, you know, the appropriate, you know, opportunities to have um, to go see a psychologist, to go to talk to somebody, to work through it, where it's not tracked by the department, but we just want to make sure that people have, you know, appropriate outlet. Um, Additionally, they have they've added um, even a system on the phone where people can just, you know, log in on the phone and and do um, and and maybe just, you know, talk things through, you know, constantly, you know, under being under pressure is detrimental to anybody in any profession. So certainly you put a a badge, a gun, a taser, and pepper spray on somebody, you want to make sure that they are um, in the right mental state to do their work. And so it's incredibly important, uh, many agencies, including Seattle, are looking at opportunities to make sure that they're able to track. Uh, and keep officers, uh, you know, their, their wellness uh, at the forefront, particularly after they had a, a, a serious number of uh, a high number of increases in officer suicides, as well. So all of that um, are indicators that we need to do more on the wellness front. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, moving along, how would you counsel women, especially women of color, who might be considering moving up the ranks in SPD? One oh, of the audience.
0: Yeah, I was often pushing for that to happen <laughs> uh, because uh, you know it's, it's incredibly important that. Um that you know we the department reflects a community and i can tell you i can't even tell you actually the number of young girls and mothers and actually young boys too that you know were uh, surprised and proud uh, of the fact that there was a african-american woman chief at the time so i think that that level of representation makes a difference um in both the perception of the organization but certainly in the perception of people who want to come into the organization at some point or have a role there Um, I would encourage people to, you know, to, uh, you know, stay the course, you know, uh, be resilient. There'll be challenges. You know, I definitely had my supporters uh, who I am uh, indebted to and grateful for, and I have my uh, detractors as well. So you got to develop some thick skin here, um, but stay focused on, um, you know, the overarching outcome, uh, it would be unrealistic to say there won't be challenges. There won't be challenges within the organization or outside of the organization. Uh, but uh, it's incredibly important that the organization reflect the community and that people know uh, that there are people within this organization willing to move up uh, and, and take on these positions. Because how can you really trust if if you only see you know, a monolithic uh, group of folks in charge, how can you trust that, they are, that there's really fairness and equity within the within the, um, within the organization?
2: Well, um, we are unfortunately out of time. Um, that was fast. <laughs> I, yeah, it always does. Um, Chief Bess, <laughs> I wanna say thank you for uh, a great conversation and we really appreciate you having you on.
0: Great, thank you, David. I appreciate being here. Thank all the people at uh, CrossCup for putting this on. It's a great event.
1: And that's it for this week's episode. Thanks to Carmen Best and to David for the talk. And thanks also to the folks in the audience who asked questions. If you'd like to be one of those audience members for a future CrossCut event, go to crosscut.com slash events. This episode of CrossCut Talks was engineered by Chi Lee. The live recording was engineered by Rusty Bacall and Victoria Ralph. And the event was produced by Jake Newman and Andrea O'Meara. Anne Novich and Moe Cloud managed our audience engagement. If you'd like to subscribe to Crosscut Talks, you can do just that on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit Crosscut.com. And if you'd like to support the work we do at Crosscut, whether that's these conversations or the in-depth reporting that journalists like David produce every week, go to crosscut.com slash donate. Crosscut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Bumgarten. We'll be back soon with another conversation.